During the COVID-19 pandemic, one of my favorite programs to watch on television was the Cinemax miniseries called Warrior. Set in San Francisco's Chinatown during the late 1870s, this amazing show, inspired by the writings of Bruce Lee, is an action-packed period drama that depicts the realities of anti-Asian racial oppression along with the furious fists of kung fu fight scenes. One of the main characters in this exciting series is Father Jun, the leader of the city's most powerful gang, or Tong, played by the New York-based actor Perry Young. His portrayal of this hard-edged and often violent leader is so captivating, I became an instant fan. By an odd coincidence, Young and I just happened to have a mutual friend on Facebook. After getting acquainted online, I also discovered that he is a passionate advocate for the resistance to the rise of hostility towards Asian people and the climate of hatred being perpetrated by white supremacists nationwide. As a master of the performing arts, Young uses his talents to personify prototypical roles of Asian men to give them both a depth and texture far beyond the cliched stereotypes so often presented by Hollywood. In his latest film, Boogie, Young plays the father of the title character, a young man who struggles with his identity as a Chinese-American basketball player with NBA aspirations at the intersection of the black and Asian communities of the modern era. Young and I spoke over Zoom not long before the mass murder of six Asian women in Atlanta. In addition to the parallels between the current state of anti-Asian sentiment today and the violence and oppression of the past, Young and I discussed his long career as both an actor and the maker of the traditional Japanese flute called the shakuhachi. I'm James Edward Mills, and you're listening to The Joycher Project. Perry Young, welcome to the Joycher Project. Thank you, James. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure talking to people. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, especially where we're at right now, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, we're, you know, kind of sorting through a lot of different things. But on the plus side, though, the new technology of Zoom and video conferencing, you know, gives us the ability to kind of break down the barriers of distance and have what will hopefully be a substantive conversation about you and your work, your past projects, and some of your current projects. You know, and so just taking a look at your IMDb page, I understand that you're from Oakland, California, and I'm actually from Los Angeles myself. I grew up in LA, but I went to school at Berkeley. Oh, right. Yeah, I lived in Berkeley also. I love Berkeley. I mean, you know, that's my home. I, oh. I lived down on, I lived on Cedar and Shattuck for a while when I was studying, studying art. Oh, no kidding. I lived on Telegraph and Channing Way. Know that area so well. That was one of my favorite Mexican restaurants, La Ultima, I think right there. Yeah. I don't know if it's still there, but it, it was yeah. like... It's, it's one of those things, I mean, and I guess it really depends because I think you and I are about the same age. When, when, we, when did you live there? 
Well, I was born in, in uh, Oakland in, in 1964. And then my parents, you know, moved and, and bought the archetypal restaurant, Chinese restaurant in the middle of nowhere in the 70s, late 70s. But I moved back and I graduated from Skyline High in 82. And then I went to SF State. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So give me an idea. How did you begin your career as an actor? Because I understand that you, you know, had your first acting production in 1992. Where, where did you get your start in, in as an actor? Well, I, uh, I went to school. I got my bachelor's degree in fine art. I was also a musician. And, and, and at that time, I wanted to get to the height and understand what fine art meant. And what was happening was performance art at the time. So, uh, act, you know, painters conceptual artists using their body at, as to tell a story, you know, um, conceptual work. And I wanted to understand that. So I moved from painting and printmaking into like wondering what my body can do for an audience. So I had to take movement classes and dance classes and things like that just to liberate my body. And let me recommend, let me just say, I recommend to anybody who's never taken a dance class, you know, I, I mean, it's like a formal dance class, like ballet or, or modern dance, because it really opens up your body to something you've never done. It's amazing what it will do to your brain. So anyway, it, it tapped into something in my brain that was like, wow, I never knew that muscle existed, you know? <laughs> so, you know, that led into a really just a passion for my, for the human form. I fell into deep love with dance. Some, some of my dance teachers saw that and took me under their wing and brought me to their schools outside of you know, SF State and I performed with their dance companies. Uh, and then when I graduated, I was more of a dancer than I was a painter or musician. It was amazing. Uh, and then I moved to New York City shortly after and tried to audition for dance and still be a painter and musician. But you know, like, like anybody who moves to New York City, you realize very quickly that you have a small space and you can't do anything in there. You're sharing a tiny apartment. Maybe you're sleeping in the, uh, in the living room for a lot of money. And how are you gonna do your art? You know, so most people have to find a studio or something and I couldn't afford it. I just moved there. So I started looking at how I can work with other people in dance or music and sort of, you know, work in their spaces. So I auditioned for like six months. I didn't get anything and I, I was about to throw in the towel, you know. But one day I saw an audition in the Village Voice looking for Chinese American performers. And I went, wow, that's me. You know, I auditioned, I got a part. You know, and it just goes to show, it's like, you know, you just have to be the right type. So that was my first production. It was a performance art, dance, theater, musical spectacle. And they asked me if I could act and just bring in a story. And I went, wow, I'm not an actor. You know, I, I could play music and I could dance and perform. So I just wrote a little monologue, what I thought would be a dramatic monologue. And I thought, well, what, what's the most emotional thing I, that ever happened to me? and that I could talk about. And I went, oh, you know, it's the moment my father died. So I wrote, you know, you know, a, a three minute monologue on what happened, where I was, who told me, how I felt. And I just told the auditioners that as I auditioned, you know, I didn't know how to act or anything, just sat on a chair. And then uh, the next day they said, you're hired. And, and we want you to do the, the main acting scene. I was like, okay. But I better learn how to act quickly, you know, because I never, you know, you know, so like I did, the, you know, I did the whole show with everybody else. It was an ensemble cast. Everybody was a dancer, actor, all this other stuff. But I, I had the main acting part. So, so I quickly dived in and then thank God for a great director, a great scene partner. They showed me how to act. And that was 1991. And it was a production called Havoc in Gold Mountain. 
that scene was a one act play called Chinese Men Can't Make Me Laugh, written by Corky Lee, who is our amazing Asian American photographer laureate, who unfortunately passed away mm-hmm. just three weeks ago of COVID in New York City. And uh, there's you know a lot of memorials still happening for him today, uh, this week. So that was my first step on stage. People saw me from the theater community and I got another gig after that. So that was one of those moments. It was a stepping stone in my life. And wow. suddenly it opened a door to off-Broadway experimental theater. And I met the late, great Ellen Stewart through that. And Ella Stewart is, is an African-American woman who put experimental theater on the map. Mm. She is the producer of Jesus Christ Superstar, what is the other the hair? All these amazing musicals that that would not have been produced and made without her. And this was in the 1960s, you know. And mm-hmm. nobody knows about her. So, and it's it's remarkable because you've gone on to do a lot of film and television. I see that you were in John Wick Two. You're in the Steven Soderbergh series, The Nick. You were in Gotham, Blacklist, Blue Bloods. You've done quite a bit, frankly. Have have, have you always played? the, I guess, the archetypical well, you know, you know, Chinese character? I mean, is, has that been your, your, your role in, in, in movies and film? It's a really interesting question because it, it, it tells us how, how it's framed. You know, what I do is framed against what Asians are seen in America and Hollywood. Yes, because that's how Hollywood works. And in theater, it's not that way. Like I said, we're working with Ellen Stewart in the Mama Theater. I can be anybody. Right. I can be a body on stage. It doesn't matter in performance art, contemporary theater. But if I was to move on Broadway and do a play, a straight play written by Sam Shepard or somebody else, the color of your skin matters. You know, August Wilson, the color of your skin matters. So in television, the color of your skin matters because we tell a dramatic story in a conventional way. The color and race tells our story of our character quickly, then we can tell the story that the writer wants to tell. So I couldn't do theater. I couldn't do film and TV in my younger days because I didn't have, there were nothing, there was nothing for me in the 90s. It right. was just bad. It was the episode of the week for Law and Order that had a Chinatown scene, you know? And, and it's always about prostitution or gangs and, and stuff like that. So I couldn't audition for those roles. So I just stayed with theater and then, you know, we had a kid and I dropped out and found flute making as, an, as a side craft, which actually I was lucky to you know, be a stay at home dad. So I dropped out of acting for 10 years. And then when my kids were old enough, you know, I started to get the itch again, the bug for the stage, but I couldn't go back to theater because theater didn't pay enough for me to be away from home. Uh, so I looked into film and television. And by that time, Justin Lin had done A Better Luck Tomorrow, you know, a, a groundbreaking film for Asian Americans. Lost was on television with Daniel Day Kim, who was a friend of mine in New York City before he made it into Lost. And streaming and HBO and, and Netflix and all these original content started to reveal that there are people of color in America with their own stories, you know? So I thought, yes, I thought this is a moment where I should actually try to audition for TV. And lo and behold, I, one of my first auditions was for Steven Soderbergh in The Nick. And um, I just happened to be, you know, it was a casting call for a opium, you know, dealer and, and brothel owner, but it was done in a more, you know, in a, in a cooler way where by then we had Breaking Bad and we knew that the villain could be like the anti-hero. And so, so my character Ping Wu kind of became a fan favorite because it wasn't just a stereotypical 
Asian Tong leader of the 1870s. You know, he was kind of cool. You know, a lot of people said, there's something about your character. The feedback I got was like, you just brought that character to another dimension, which I knew that was a challenge for me when I went into that role. So yes, um, to answer your question, that's the framework that Asians have to work in, in, in Hollywood if we want to work in the industry, Hollywood, commercial TV and film. Our roles are quite small, the story that's being told. Right. But I got to tell you that, you know, how I became familiar with your work was through the Cinemax two season series, Warrior. And I'm got yeah, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it because it was awesome. And episode one, season one, the itchy onion, you play Father Jun. June. And June, thank you, Father June. Yeah. And your opening line as you're being introduced to the principal character, Assam, as he's being about to be skinned into the gang, is riveting. War is coming between the tongs. If you can scrap, you're in. Young June will get you settled. Tomorrow we'll start to work you in and see what you're worth. Assam. Did I just get off a boat? Excuse me? I asked if I was the one that just crossed the salt on a fucking boat. No, you're not. No, I'm not. What I am is the boss of the most powerful Tong in Chinatown. What you are is one in 25,000 broke Chinese fucking nationals I just bought for the price of a shitty bottle of wine. I tell you this at the risk of stating the obvious to remind you that you are a fucking onion. And before a fucking onion turns away from me, you better fucking bow. And, yes. and I gotta tell you that you, you kind of took that 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 characterization, I think, to level 11. <laughs> and, and, and really, really brought it. Because I, I gotta tell you, I, I'm having a hard time believing that I'm talking to the same person right now. Because <laughs> that character is, I mean, it's his it's bone chilling. He was, he was frightening, you know, but at the same time, very grounded and rooted in tradition and in culture. And I mean, just the, the production is, is exquisite. Let's just put it that way. I'm really curious to know, you know, where did you get the inspiration to interpret that particular character of Father June in Warrior, you know, to make it so compelling? Well, you know, when I first took the role of Ping Wu with Steven Soderbergh, I I had to do a little bit of research, but I already knew my, my history as a Chinese American. I knew all the racism, you know, that my great, great grandfather experienced when he got off that boat, like Assam, when he saw scientists go back to China and was spat upon and lynched. You know, I knew that history already going into the role. So I had a kind of authority with my experience. I could say, this is coming from reality. You know, my, my interpretation of these roles, the violence, the anger that's in him is real. But, but it can't just be that. So there's a line in Father June's monologue in the begin, uh, when he skins him in. I don't know if it's still there, if it got cut, but he says, the reason I have the most powerful tong in Chinatown is to prevent the violence of the ducks upon our people. So that line told me he's basically a revolutionary. 
you know, he had also fought in the opium wars. And um, so, you know, that, you know, the opium, he, he fought, you know, the, the British soldiers from importing opium into China. So it's like, he's a revolutionary. The first person I went to anger and fight was Malcolm X, you know, and it went like, okay, so Malcolm X is just not that hardcore person. If you do the research, he also loves his people. He says, I don't hate white people. I love people who love our people, you know? And so like, I, I also read uh, Yuri Kochiyama's work, Interviews, who's a Japanese-American woman who was, you know, in the concentration camps in America, who went to work with Malcolm X to say that, you know, if Black people are suffering, we're all suffering. So she went, that's the people we have to help. So her work became, you know, very Black-centered. And she would have these activist meetings in her apartment in Harlem. And when Malcolm X would come, people, people in her apartment he would talk to people in an apartment very personably and everyone would say, he's such a nice guy, you know? Who right. would know that? Like, but you know, but he is, you know, and, I, and, I, and if you watch um, One Night in, in Miami or you know, you know of him, mm -hmm. he loves his people and it's all about stepping up for your people. And that's what Father Jim was about. Step up so we don't get killed. We're getting killed, we better step up. Which brings us to today, you know? Right. right. And um, we'll get to that in a minute, because part of what is remarkable about Warrior as a series is that I think it really puts into context that violence, you know, of what it was like in 1878 in San Francisco, in California. I mean, people need to remember how soon that was after the Civil War. You yes. Know, but it was before the Asian Exclusion Act, though. You know, and so there's this interesting period it's, and it, 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 it's beautifully, beautifully told. Chaos, you know, it was chaos in America. It's a wild west, you know, laws only apply to whoever, you know, whoever was applying it at that moment. You know, you, you could see how history was um, played out in, in Warrior in, in such a, you know, it was, it's violent and ugly, but it's the beauty thing, beautiful thing about Warrior, it enhances this, this art. It gives us art to interpret and feel, you know, like his, this violence from history. And we can sort of, experience in a way that's non-judgmental you know but we can look at the systems in place that that force those actions to happen we don't know that but in that time period the chinese were lynched more than anyone else you know the one of the biggest mass lynchings in was in california where 17 men and, and boys were lynched in los angeles this was right about the time of the chinese the height of the anti-chinese movement and and right about the time that you know slavery was being abolished you know and so there was all kinds of of, of scapegoating and anger happening from the dominant majority dominant culture that was also probably very confused and lit by demagogues you know mm. Exactly. Right. I mean, it, it's been, you know, um, brewing. It's been brewing, you know, since the beginning of America, since the beginning of oppression, it's been brewing. You know, we're giving, we're giving little steps forward just to appease and stop the violence. And, and, you know, if you look at the history of America, we've come a long way, you know, and, and Trump shows that how easy it is to go back. You know, like, you know, we, we, we can accept you know, LBGT communities, same-sex marriage, women's rights today, which we couldn't, you know, 50 years ago. So things have changed dramatically and we want to, as a human species, move that way. But it's always been there. We've always been fighting. It's always been a pendulum of back and forth. Wow, wow. 
And so when I stop and think about you know, where we are today relative to where we come from, I think that gets us to your new movie, Boogie. And, and this is the main reason why we're having this conversation right now, because uh, like I told you earlier, I was just going to leave it at, at having a nice Facebook exchange and fanboying <laughs> my brains out over a character that I really enjoyed in a television show that I was watching. But this new movie, I think, does an amazing job of expressing the intersectionality right. you know, between where we were and where we are now. And I'll, I'll confess, because it hasn't come out yet, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> It, uh, it comes out, I think, is it, is it March 5th or, or March 6th? 5th. March, March 5th. 5th. Yes. Right. So with, without, any, without any spoilers, <laughs> uh, tell us about Boogie and what is it about? Well, Boogie is essentially a coming of age story of a basketball player kid who's challenged with the contemporary, you know, choices and decisions of assimilating into hip hop culture that he grew up with in Queens. I mean, not assimilate, he's already in it, but to, to challenge his identity within that and his Chinese traditional upbringing of, of continuing, making successful choices for the family, his own personal choices should be good for the family. So that's in a lot of traditional Chinese cultures that, that are Confucius based and you don't leave the home like America, it's like, you know, you're forced to leave the home in America. But in Asia, you're kind of expected to stay home and, 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 and you know, make your family richer. So Boogie is challenged with that and his own choices. He wants to be an you know, NBA player, but he wants to get a scholarship, but his mother wants him to start making money and maybe take a scholarship in China. I mean, this, you know, these aren't really spoilers. It's just a story, but sure. So he's, you know, in all of that, he falling for a young black girl you know his age and that kind of stuff isn't really seen often in contemporary you know pop culture at all the stories you know it's not seen at all you're absolutely right um in in the stories that are being told by hollywood but if you actually are of that culture if you're a young chinese kid in queens um or harlem you see that these these races these cultures mix these communities mix there's a lot of mixed Black Asian couples. I mean, I, I was one of them. I come from them in Oakland. You know, I had Black girlfriends. I had, you know, some, some, you know, we would get stares, you know, but it was like from the older generation, you know, and even in New York City, you know, I, I had mixed relationships. I think they're beautiful things. We learn so much about each other. And I think partly was for me growing up as a Chinese American who's emasculated in the media, it's like pairing with an African-American woman said something about that. And in, in some ways, I'm kind of forced to address that. It's like, you know, I'm, I don't want to walk around as, as like it's a badge of honor because that's, that's bullshit too. I don't want to live my life that way. You know, I want to just be free to love whoever I love. I mean, I can't imagine what African-American women, Black women go through if they fall in love with a white man. You know, the kind of looks that they get, you know, or, 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 or the same with, you know, Black men and white women. It's like, or, or Asian men and white women. It's all like... Are you buying out? Are you selling out? Or is it love? You know, those things like should not trap us into, into looking for love. But you know, you have to ask, is the white man also trapped by that? You know, are his choices also guided by, you know, who they can, you know, mate with? So I think Boogie touches upon a lot of that. But the beautiful thing about Boogie is it shows the unity and solidarity that's available and that is there if we want it. It really is there, just like that. And if we look at history, I mean, we had 
Yellow Peril in the 70s supporting Huey Newton, you know, marching with them with rifles. You know, that's not a story Hollywood is comfortable with telling, but it existed and it shouldn't be buried. So I think that Boogie is, 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 a, is a film, is entertainment that raises a question without challenging too much because it's just about a boy coming of age with the pressures of society. And once again, it looks like you're paying, playing a father figure <laughs> and, yeah. and, and it's, and it's remarkable to, again, um, this is based exclusively on the trailers, but it, it seems like there is some conflict in the family there as well. And, and I'm, I'm just paraphrasing a line that I recall from the trailer that basically says that as Boogie's father, you're interested in helping to help ground him in his culture you know, and have it be part of who he ultimately becomes, despite the fact that he's a, a, a parent, the father, as I understand it, he's, he's, I don't, is he, is it fair to call him a gangster? Clearly, he clearly has problems with the criminal justice system. Right, right. He he's does. Big, but he's Boogie's biggest advocate too. He is, which, you know, the, again, the beautiful thing about Eddie Huang's writing is he wanted to share what real stories. So there's a lot, you know, what we get about Chinese fathers in America is not at all close to what Chinese fathers are in real life, you know? We get an idea that the, because of a book that the Chinese women are tiger moms, you know, they're very hard on their kids and they want them to do well. Chinese fathers are also very hard on their kids and they can be, they're not necessarily, uh, some are absentee fathers, you know, but a lot operate in a Confucius patriarchal way. You know, they, they demand their kids to behave a certain way, but you know, it, it, um, Mr. Chin, the character in Boogie, loves his kid. He's, he wants to impart the love of the tradition in his child and the love of family. Now, he wants his child to make the right choices for the family, you know, and also for himself. So he's sort of caught in between two worlds, but he is a gangster. He is a badass dude that was actually, you know, Im imprisoned at some point, you know, and there are real life Chinese American fathers in, 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 you know, that are those types, just like um, we have in the African American community, in, in the Latinx community. Um, you know, there are tongs, the, the nefarious tongs. I don't want to say tongs. Tongs are generally just means association. And there are club. Yeah, so there are a lot of clubs in Chinatown that are 99% of them are legit clubs that supports the community. That 1% are the nefarious tongs, which, you know, I happen to play in most of these Hollywood productions. So, there are those those characters in real life and Eddie's dad was one of them, you know? And, and I know them from having lived in Chinatown. Those dads exist. And just getting back to the, you're, you know, like I, after I came out of fatherhood, you know, like the stay-at-home dad and I started auditioning for these parts, I was cast as the dad, you know, in a lot of things. And somebody asked, is that because you became a dad? And it kind of made sense. And, and it was like, yeah, I became a dad. I became a real Chinese American dad, you know? And uh, somehow there were roles that wanted a real Chinese American dad. And here I was. Well, I think part of what I'm really seeing as well in your Instagram and Facebook feeds, I mean, just like your social media, you're doing a lot of, of talking about the, the new anti-Asian sentiment that's going on. And a lot of that is coming out of the Trump administration and basically blaming China, the Chinese on the coronavirus. And that anger and vitriol is being communicated upon Chinese Americans and Asian Americans right here in this country. 
are we going back to you know the the days of of 1877 you know you know pulling back from the the narrative that was unfolding in warrior to ultimately again vilify you know the asian alien as someone who isn't to be trusted and that should be met with violence i mean there are families in oakland chinatown right now that are escorting their elders to the grocery store because of how they might be treated how did we get here it is a step back trump represents old historical white supremacy and racism it's a step back it's it's not hidden i mean he he tried to hide it in the first year he was in the office but it pretty much came out full blown that he supports white supremacy and that's what he's about and when i say white supremacy i don't mean necessarily people are white supremacists but people are operate in a system that's that's america was built upon and some people um work knowingly in that system and some people are you know just follow blindly in the system without questioning so i think that trump is is a little is pretty aware of what he's doing with his language in organizing you know his his troops so major step back and when you say it's like those you know okay so recently there was a posting by you know i don't know if you heard about it one of the uh, sag um union actors union board member in philly who made a who made a meme with Biden with slanty eyes and a white beard and and you know some sort of that ching chong language about some dumb fuck right. became our president right so that harkens back to those 1870s anti chinese movement posters where they were pulling the hair of these uh, chinese men with cues their braided cues and kicking them and saying china chinese go back to china right. that's the exact same poster of that time how did we get here it's because of the language of our ex president you know, uh, inciting violence and hatred just to galvanize his people for political power. So, you know, we're scapegoated. Like Mexicans were scapegoated two or three years ago. Like the Muslims were scapegoated um, after 9-11. And, you know, and then if you just keep going farther back, it's every recent immigrant is scapegoated for the political, you know, uh, power of, of, of the day. So we just have to understand history to, to see that it goes in cycles. And I think, you know, there's, there's willful ignorance. People don't know any better, you know, or they say they don't know any better, but all you have to do is read, you know, and, and you can sort of understand what's happening and then make a choice. Because if you don't stand up for the violence that's happening right now, you are, a, you are part of the violence. You're allowing the violence. You're supporting the violence. And that's something that, Malcolm X said in the, the Regina King directed One Night in Miami, you know, Malcolm X says to Sam Cooke, you need to stand up with your platform. You don't, you know, singing the song about love isn't going to do it for us right now, you know, so you have a stronger platform. And I think that's a responsibility for people who have a voice to inspire and to influence and to speak up, at least say, hey, guys, read up about this stuff. Just don't believe what I'm saying. Do a little research, otherwise you're part of the violence. So now, do you think that a movie like Boogie can help get us there? I mean, to help bridge the gap, to help us ask the questions, to become curious about the things that we might be blind to? I mean, is, is this an opportunity to have the conversation, frankly, that we're having right now, you know, about how we can basically make positive steps forward? Oh, completely. I mean, there are ways that, you know, it, you know, it depends on how you measure, how, how can you measure whether art makes a difference. 
I mean, all it takes is an image. An image can inspire action, positive action, you know, or somebody who studies it not through art, but reading and literature and, and research and numbers, statistics, that can inspire people to make change. Because if you just look at the statistics, the statistics, sorry, <laughs> of what is happening, there's been over 2,000 attacks on Asian Americans this year. That's a huge, incredible spike. So if you look at statistics, you would go, wow, I better do something. What can I do about this? But if you look at an image, you know, like that meme from uh, the actor John Mitchell, who, who makes uh, Biden slanty-eyed, you can also go, wow, what can I do about this? You know, uh, and then if you look at a film like Boogie, who's actually telling you a story of showing unity and possible love between the two cultures, that's incredibly inspiring. And I would say, yes, it will make a difference. It will start a conversation and it will challenge the individual to make a choice. It's like, where do you stand in all of this? Well, you'd mentioned a moment ago that you were a flute maker. Right. And and I got to say that was that was something uh, that was a very pleasant surprise <laughs> in, <laughs> in in preparing for this interview. Frankly, I had no idea because you, you actually the Father Jun character in Father June character in Warrior plays the flute, and I just assumed that it I don't know background music and you were just moving your fingers. But apparently, this is something that's that's actually part of your your life. So where did you get your training to be a a flute craftsman? Well, uh, I was looking for something to decolonize my mind as I was a musician because I was only playing rock and roll, you know, guitars and, you know, but, you know, even while I was playing for a few years, I thought, you know, I'm still trying to undo the, the Eurocentric conditioning. So, but I, but I rationalized my love of rock and roll to where, you know, these British rockers took it from African-Americans, you know, the blues was the beginning of rock and roll. And my favorite musicians were black musicians, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, you know, as I was decolonizing my mind, I went, I need to play an instrument that's not white, you know? So it went to the bamboo flute of Asia, you know? So I tried the Chinese bamboo flute and I enjoyed that. But, but in the production, I was cast in with La Mama, uh, Oedipus the King, Ellen Stewart cast me as Oedipus and in that production, there was a pit musician, Yukio Suji, a Japanese American who played the shakuhachi. And it was a experimental uh, music with, um, you know, electric guitar, drums, synthesizer, you know, uh, uh, Korean stringed instruments and then the Japanese flute. And once I heard that flute amidst all of that chaos, there was a silent moment and you just heard the sound of the flute. Mm. It just changed my life. You know, the colors in the room changed. I went, I gotta learn how to play that instrument. And then I went up to Yukio after the show and I said, what is that instrument you're playing at that moment? And he said, oh, this, he holds up the flute and he went, the shakuhachi? But it turned out that show, Oedipus the King went on tour in Europe. And I was, you know, we were on the back of a bus somewhere in uh, Croatia. Mm. And uh, I saw Yukio making this shoot flute in the back of the bus. And I went, wait, you make these? And he went, well, in 10 years, this will be a good one. And uh, I thought, ah, okay, so I have crafting skills as being an artist. So when that show was over, I went back to New York, I went to the Flower District, I bought some bamboo poles, I went over to Yukio's and I, and I basically copied his instruments and I learned how to play and make on my own for a couple of years because I couldn't afford a real shakuhachi from Japan. And then I bumped into a woman on the street that I did a film for, Veronica Soul. I did her story, a film called The Ghost Story. 
And uh, she goes, Perry, what are you doing? You know, it's one of those stories. We're in the middle of New York City in Soho on a, on a corner of Broadway and Houston. And I bump into her and I say, well, you won't believe this, but I'm making shakuhachi. And she went, ah, and, and I knew Veronica would know that what that was because she was in Japan on a grant called the Japan U.S. Friendship Foundation Commission who give grants, they give grants to artists to study a tra traditional Japanese craft. And so I applied and I got the grant. And next thing you know, I'm in Japan in front of a Japanese master learning how to make and play shakuhachi. And I don't even speak Japanese, you know? So, which goes to show it's, it's you know, if, if there's an art form and you love it, you know, language just gets in the way. You absorb it, you know, through, through um, something called mirroring neurons in your brain. You know, it's an oral tradition. You just absorb. And it's one of the most amazing ways to learn. Don't ask questions because your words get in the way. Just absorb. So, so I, I spent six months in Japan. I came back. I had a kid on the way by that time. And we, neither my partner and I had insurance because she was a dancer. And we were like, somebody's got to get a job, you know. And um, she said, I, I will go get an MFA and teach, and you know because that's the real way to get a job and stay in, in the arts. And I went, right. I'll, I'll stay home and be the stay-at-home father. And miraculous, miraculously, at that moment, the internet started. eBay started. And somehow I found the business selling shakuhachi on eBay. And who would have known that people around the world would search shakuhachi on the internet and find me in America? And at that time, anybody who was making shakuhachi in Japan had you know Japanese on the websites and there was no translator yet. So people were just coming to me. And so I did that for 10 years. I, I became the stay-at-home dad. And you know it goes back to a story of like by the time you know my kids were nine or ten, I got a little bored and had to get back on stage. So in that 10 years I, I created a community. I found the, um, the community of Shakuhachi players worldwide. It's an amazing community of mindful, compassionate artists who play the flute for meditation and uh, self-awareness and yeah it makes the world a better place i can't tell you how much i've enjoyed this conversation thank you so much for sharing your your story with me just real quick what are you doing next i mean so boogie's coming out week after next or next week what what are you working on after that Continuing in our in, in our talk about intersectionality and solidarity, I am working to with kind of people who are very successful in the hip hop community. I can't really talk about it like you know publicly, but these people who are very successful in in the black culture uh, pop culture world to help Chinatowns across America and help bring discussion and dialogue about the uh, anti Asian violence right now because you know there's there's anti-Black sentiment in the Asian culture and there's uh, Asian American culture, there's anti-Asian violence in, for coming from the Black culture. So we need to discuss that clearly. And, and, and this project I'm working on is going to be big. I think it's going to help bring money to, to save Chinatown and also bring awareness to the solidarity that's always existed between Black and, and Asian cultures in America. I look forward to seeing that. And I really look forward to see what you're doing with the hip hop community, Asian culture, and you know, turning it around for you know a new, better, greater America. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. This has been fabulous. Thank you for having me, James. Pleasure was all mine.
You can learn more about Perry Young on his website at perryyoung.wordpress.com. In light of the current climate of racism and bigotry across America, I want to encourage everyone to seek out and experience cultures of every variety. Buy their art, learn their language, eat their food, watch their media, and demand all those around you to stop the hate. For The Joy Chair Project, this is James Edward Mills. Music this week comes courtesy of Artlist, featuring the work of Ian Post and the group Kodo. The opening was the theme music from the Cinemax series Warrior by Reza Safinia and H. Scott Salinas. The Joy Cheer Project is made possible thanks to the support of Patagonia, Yeti, Saris Innovations, Outdoor Research, and a grant from the National Geographic Society. You can learn more about this and other storytelling initiatives on the website joychipproject.com. Thanks for listening, but as always, you know I want to hear from you. So please, write a note in the comments or via email at info at joychipproject.com. If you enjoyed this conversation, write a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. There you'll find episodes going back more than a decade. Let me know what you think. For now, go be joyful, and until next time, take care.